I am hosting a retreat in Tulum, Mexico, in paradise this October called Bloom in Tulum. It's a five-day, all-inclusive, personal and professional growth retreat for ambitious, big-hearted women who are ready to step into their power with grace, support, and confidence. So my two biz besties and I dreamed up this magical retreat over sushi a few months back, and after lots of planning, it's actually happening. We have mapped out a thoughtful itinerary with lots of downtime to make the most of this beautiful paradise beachside location and also set you up for a powerful and memorable experience of growth. There's only 20 spots available and all three of us are promoting it to our full community. So that's like over 50,000 people. So I imagine the spots will fill very quickly. If you are interested in joining us in Bloom and Tulum, go to bloomintulum.com for all the details and to complete your application. Also know that early bird pricing ends on June 30th. So it's a really good time to secure your spot and save some money. I mean, honestly, like how fun would it be to hang out in person at a gorgeous, luxurious, all-inclusive in October? So head to Bloom in Tulum. That's B-L-O-O-M in Tulum. T-U-L-U-M. Bloomintulum.com for all the details and complete your application. I learned to be kinder to myself, which was not that easy. Of course you feel these feelings, like we feel what we feel, but what are you adding on to it? And can you care about yourself anyway? You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 179. Today, we are talking about loving kindness and mindfulness for real happiness with Sharon Salzberg. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. A Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans, which you might be able to find at RaisingGoodHumansBook.com. Woohoo! Pre-order may be on. You should check it out. I don't know why I'm singing. I'm just so excited to have Sharon Salzberg, who is one of my... I'm so, so honored to have been had the chance to talk to this amazing teacher. Dear listener, I'm so excited that you are here. I'm so grateful for you to be here because you are going to be in the presence of a world-renowned teacher. And Sharon Salzberg is, she's taught me so much, um, along with so many others. She is the author of Real Happiness, Faith, and Loving Kindness. She has taught loving kindness around the world. She is respected with her own work, and she has been teaching for many, many years, as you will hear. I'm so excited for you to talk to and meet Sharon Salzberg in this conversation. And you're going to hear that from she had a, an early childhood that was filled with fear, uncertainty, and trauma, and she took those challenges and found that the teachings of the Buddha normalized her suffering and really gave her a path to freedom from that. And she's followed that path to become one of the most preeminent teachers of mindfulness in the world through her writings, her talks, and her retreats. 
And in this episode, she shares insights into meditation and loving kindness practice in her really down-to-earth, relatable way that really provides some true insight. So I want you to listen for a few things in this conversation. Um, I want you to listen for that the, the engine for insight is mindfulness. And this is something to kind of chew on, right? How, how loving kindness practice is actually an antidote to fear, which is so cool. And the core of meditation and loving kindness practices is to shift how we're relating to our own experience. So this is a really, really exciting episode. I'm so happy for you to be here and to hear Sharon Salzberg. Um, before we dive in, I want to make a quick shout out to those who have left a review of the po- of the Mindful Mama podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. It makes a huge difference. If you're a listener and you haven't left a review yet, please do. It makes a big difference sharing these awesome uh, teachers and speakers with so many others because of the iTunes algorithm and all that. So please leave a review. And if you like this podcast, you know, share it with friends, leave a review, do something to, uh, to help support the podcast that my team and I work hard at to, to get to you each week. So thank you so much in advance. All right. Now, so excited. I wish I had drum rolls. Join me at the table as I talk to Sharon Salzberg. So Sharon Salzberg, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. No, yeah, it's delightful. Thank you. So I just want to take this opportunity right away to just fangirl on you just a little bit. Your teaching and teachings and your books have been so influential to me. And your book, Real Happiness, is one of my favorite, all-time favorite books on meditation that there ever was written. And I've actually used this as required or recommended reading for a mindful parenting course that I teach. I have sent it to people all around the world. I love it so, so much. So thank you for this amazing work. And and I'm just really, really honored that you have a chance to come here to the Mindful Mama podcast. Well, thank you so much, really. And this work, the work on loving kindness and the work with meditation that you've dedicated your life to, this came out of your own life, right? You had a really challenging childhood that you had to contend with. So if you don't mind, tell the listener a little bit about what what you went through as a child that, you know, maybe started some of the seeking that you did. Yes, I did have a very rocky childhood. And I wrote this one book called Faith, which is kind of like my spiritual autobiography. And in writing it, I looked back over my childhood a lot. And I calculated and I realized I went to college when I was 16. By the time I went to college, I had lived in five different family configurations, each of which had been ended or changed by a death or or some significant trauma. So uh, my parents split up when I was four. I lived with my mother um, and she died when I was nine. And then I went to live with my father's parents and it sort of, it, it kept going on from there. I hadn't seen or heard uh, from my father since I'd been four, and he left. And he returned when I was 11 after his father died, who I was living with. And he, you know, he was in a really unstable place by then. He was drinking a lot. He had all kinds of mental problems and uh, ended up, he was just there for about six weeks, and he ended up 
going into a psychiatric facility where he then was for, you know, mm. some facility or another, one kind or another, until uh, he died, which was many, many years later. So, um, you know, it just was like that. And so... It's like a roller coaster. Uh, it was really uh, mostly down. And, and uh, when I went to college... Um, in my sophomore year, I took an Asian philosophy course, and that was really the beginning of everything changing. It was in that course. First of all, um, in all those years going through all of that, like for many people, my family was not one where all of this or any of this was really spoken about openly. And so mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with all of those uh, really difficult feelings inside of me. And so I took this Asian philosophy course and I hear about the Buddha and here's the Buddha saying right out loud, suffering is a part of life. And so for me, the hidden message in that was you're not so alone. You're not so different. You're not so weird. You don't have to feel so isolated. This is a, this is a natural, although difficult, it's a natural part of things. And so um, that was usually important for me. And then I heard in the, in the context of that course, that there was such a thing as meditation practice, that people uh, could actually train their attention in different ways so that they could be a whole lot happier. And um, I just thought, I really want to learn how to do that. And that's such a powerful moment. I look back at that moment all of the time because I think, you know, I wasn't, I was going to school in Buffalo. I wasn't content to just like stay in Buffalo and like go to graduate school studying mm-hmm. the stuff or, um, you know, having it in some sort of abstract fashion. I wanted to know how to do it. Mm. Uh, and I looked around Buffalo, and this was, of course, a long time ago. This was like 1969 um, or 70, and I just didn't find it anywhere. Um, and so I created a project. There was an American Studies Department that had an independent studies component to it. And if you created a project that they liked, the theory was you could go anywhere in the world for a year and then come back, you know? And so I created this project. Yeah. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. So that's how I ended up going. Wow. I mean, you're, yeah, I, I can imagine at that point, I'm kind of wondering like what young Sharon was doing to cope. Like, what do you remember what you were doing? I mean, to have, you know, your mother die when you're so young to see this, this degeneration, you know, all this upheaval and all this trauma and all this difficulty, you know, many of us would be turning to some nefarious things to be coping with that. (laughs) What were you coping with before you found your, your Asian studies course? Uh, well, it was the late 60s. It was also, you know, it was a kind of riotous time. Um, I think there's always something in me, you know, long before I went to Buffalo, um, that it was almost like this voice inside of me that said, things can be different. Things will be different. you got to mm. hang there or something like that. Mm. I can remember it very distinctly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so... Um, I, I knew how to finish school. You know, I loved reading. I was a really good student, you know. Um, I loved learning. And uh, I think that was a very significant thing, actually. Um, and 
when I got to school, um, I made, you know, kind of different kinds of friends and, and it was like a, a bigger world mm-hmm. for me. And it was a great atmosphere, although it was, was very tumultuous. You know, there were lots of days that there were riots on campus or something against the war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, that war. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it was a time of, um, it was also a time of like incredible exploration, you know, like um, uh, the State University of New York at Buffalo had this fabulous English department. And, uh, but I can remember like my freshman English class, you know, he came, we, we were reading Ken Kesey and, you know, he came in, the teacher came in and did like a tarot reading or something like that. You know, it wasn't, classics nice (laughs) so it was it was an amazing atmosphere it's pretty amazing that you got yourself to india you know you had you had had this you know this this childhood with all this upheaval and you got you know to this you said okay well where where is it where can i study this so i'll just go to india which is not what most of us have to do to study meditation nowadays thank goodness. But I imagine that must have been incredibly difficult thing. Like, because you hadn't traveled anywhere at this point, had you at all? No, not really. I'm, I'm fond of saying, because it's true that uh, I got to India long before I got to California. <laughs> um, there'd been one kind of family trip when I was a child uh, to Miami, you know, from New York, but that was it. And um, getting to India, as, as most of us were getting there in those days, um, meant, you know, flying to somewhere in Europe. And then it was a succession of buses and trains. And oh, my gosh. Overlay, not overlay not flying into India, but buses. No, 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 no. no. I mean, some people, I'm sure, did. And later on, I did. But uh, most of us were, were doing the overland route. Wow. Um in some ways. So it was, it was arduous. It was like major culture shock. It was, I wasn't alone. You know, I had a small group of friends that I was with, which was great, but. um, That took some courage that, I mean, that was probably, I mean, that in itself is part of your transformation. I imagine is just getting yourself there to, to get there is an incredible act of courage for a suburban, you know, white girl from. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so you you discovered meditation in, in India. You discovered other people seeking. You discovered teachers. Ultimately, I know you've shared your story about India and in other great interviews. But I I want to get to where you you learned about this about loving kindness meditation, which became your signature teaching. So when when did you first learn about Meta, or which is a Pali word for loving kindness. When did you first learn about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I got to India in the fall. It was the fall semester. You know, uh, it was 1970, and I wandered around because I was looking for something I think pretty distinct. I was looking for a method. I was looking for practice. I was looking for kind of very direct how-to instruction. And it took a while in India to find just that. And I finally heard about these intensive 10-day, they weren't completely silent, but partly silent retreats uh, that were going on, which were, they had just started in that country. 
And they were very much about just that. It was like the straight stuff. You know, here's the method. Here's help in doing it. Um, let's practice together. Do you have any questions? You know, it was like, and as I heard about it, I thought, oh, that's it. That's exactly the kind of thing I've been looking for. So I entered my first intensive 10-day meditation retreat, which is where I learned how to meditate. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. uh, January 7th, 1971. So that was an insight meditation retreat. And um, the we say the engine, uh, the methodology for developing insight is mindfulness. It was a mindfulness retreat in, in terms of the method and the style and, you know, the instruction. And then right at the very end, almost at the end of the 10 days, almost like a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye, there was a, a short guided loving kindness sitting. And it was almost like ritualistic, like, oh, we've been together, we've had this incredible experience, let's devote some of that energy to the world, and okay, bye, you know, and uh, so I was just really taken with it, and I, I thought, wow, what's that? I really want to learn more about that, and uh, it actually proved to be many years before I could get a situation where there was, a, you know, a... Uh, an instructor and uh, mm -hmm. you know, a deep familiarity with that particular form of meditation. and uh, But it, finally in 1985, I went to Burma uh, for a kind of a three-month immersion into doing loving-kindness. And, and the loving-kindness meditation is was, you know, it's interesting because I wanted to talk more about it, having just gone on that wonderful retreat with you uh, in at the Barry um, Center. Um, and it's interesting that it's, it was one of the original, sometimes people think like this idea of uh, sending ourselves loving kindness or sending others loving kindness is this sort of like soft and fluffy kind of thing, right? But like this was like this, uh, an original teaching mm. thousands and thousands, you know, thousand two twenty six hundred 2,600 years ago by the Buddha, right? Like this was not just something that American Western people made up. <laughs> no, although I'm often bizarrely given the credit, you know, because I wrote uh, an early book about it and I was teaching it quite early, um, in this country. And uh, so it was very funny. Some, I was teaching a loving kindness weekend somewhere and somebody came up to me and said, this is so great. When did you make it up? <laughs> I said, well, I didn't make anything up, you know, lucky for you. Um, they say the Buddha taught it directly. He taught it as an antidote to fear. And um, it's kind of like a parallel practice in a way. It, I mean, it's not just the practice, it's the whole notion of love in this culture, you know, tends to be aligned with people's ideas of being sentimental or too soft or <clears throat> maybe giving in too much. And um, I find that that's been one of the two big controversies I've encountered in teaching loving kindness. Some people think, Oh, that's a like gooey, you know, like I'll just get this really stupid smile on my face and I'll be happy because I'm loving, even though these terrible things are going on and I won't care. And, you know, so they don't even necessarily think of it as desirable. 
And the second great controversy um, is we would say that qualities like love or compassion uh, can be trained, that can be developed. And that's not a particularly Western notion. You know, I found that here people tend more to think that, oh, you know, it's almost like a gift and either you've been given it or not. And if you haven't been, you're out of luck. Whereas in Eastern psychology, like in Buddhist psychology, they would absolutely say these things can be trained because a lot of them are rooted in, you know, qualities like uh, loving kindness or compassion. They're rooted in how we pay attention because it's about connection. You know, if you're talking to a, a person you've just met and you're not really listening to them and you're thinking about the email you need to send or whatever, there's not really the foundation being laid for any kind of connection. And so there won't be a, you know, a flow of compassion, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know absolutely attention can be trained because it's exactly what meditation is. So uh, these are just, it's its own distinct method for training attention. We are sponsored by Midi Health. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, vaginal dryness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. All of these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around perimenopause and menopause, and the experts at Midi Health understand what you're experiencing and how to help. Midi clinicians are menopause experts dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions. MidiCare is covered by insurance, and with Midi Health, you can stop pushing through it all alone. Schedule a virtual visit to discuss your symptoms and health background in depth. You'll come out of the experience feeling heard and with a plan to start feeling better. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Joinmidi.com. We are supported by Melon Headwear. These hats are perfect for Father's Day. They are built to be in and around water. They last five times longer than any other hat. They're naturally antimicrobial properties. It doesn't, sweat doesn't break down the hat. No sweat stains, no smell ever. It's built for the water. We tested it tubing on the Brandywine River and it was fabulous. It even floats when it drops in the water. It doesn't lose shape. It is amazing. An incredible, comfortable fit. Use code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off your order. If you're trying to figure out a Father's Day gift, honestly, trust me, this is exactly what they want. Go to melon.com, that's M-E-L-I-N.com, and use the code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off. Melon rarely offers discounts, so don't miss this opportunity. It is, I swear, the perfect Father's Day gift. Premium headwear, melon.com. Use the code mindful for 30% off. I guess the, you know, the Buddha could see that, you know, our, you know, what we call now that natural negativity bias, right? Like we know now why that is and what that is. And I think of, um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh would say that like these are flower, you know, these are seeds within us that we can cultivate. And so I guess the idea is that, loving kindness is something that maybe is naturally in us. And as we pay more attention to it with these practices, we water these seeds and that is just the attention on that is what makes it so the 
seeds of fear aren't watered? Is that what you? Uh, I, I mean, I think that's right, and it's also um, just sheer attention in, in a different way. So it's like if you are the kind of person who at the end of the day, you kind of do a checklist, like how do I do today? You sort of evaluate yourself. And let's just say you're the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the mistakes you made or what you didn't say right or what you you could have done better, let's just say. Um, The practice of loving kindness is, is consciously shifting your attention to wishing yourself well. Instead of going through the list for the billionth time this week, of your faults and your flaws and you know your mistakes, those might be true. You're not entering this realm of, of crazy denial, but it's not all that's true, And but it's usually what we focus on. So we're going to take our attention and put it in a, a place that doesn't usually get a lot of airtime. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so that, that shift really helps us have, again, it's like we've created the context or the environment out of which um, qualities like loving kindness can emerge. I want to talk more about loving kindness, but I also want to think about like mindfulness meditation itself, right? Like, so do you think that um, loving kindness meditation, it can be something that we practice alone or should it be, or is it better to have uh, a mindfulness meditation practice alongside with that or a mindfulness meditation practice and then a loving kindness practice after that or you know how how are they related to each other i think they've related to each other differently different eras of history the more direct answer is i think both are are really good to have and uh most people i know do end up practicing both they're, they're just like different skills somewhat different skills they're they're very close kind of collaborators you know they work together really well but they're they're each kind of designed differently mm-hmm. um, and so which order you do it in you know historically in the time of the buddha people would do something like loving kindness first and then especially having developed some concentration through it they would have gone on to do uh, a sort of mindfulness a more open awareness practice and you know by the time 20 500 years later when I was practicing intensively like in Burma, the real, the tendency and the preference was that you do insight meditation first because no matter what practice you're doing, a lot of things are going to come up. You're going to get sleepy. You're going to get anxious just from time to time. At any rate, that particular thing you've been carrying forever, you haven't really wanted to look at, oh, it's right there. You don't have any distractions anymore. You know, how do you deal with turbulence? How do you deal with experiences that might be very good but are painful? Mm-hmm. All of that is a kind of a learned skill as well for many of us. You know, some of us uh, had childhood, so we learned it there, and some of us did not, you know, and so... A lot of us did not. <laughs> yeah, a lot of us did not. And so, you know, it's like a learned skill, like, uh, and so those two practices would approach that. It would be somewhat different skills, you know, toward yeah. the same end. Yeah. And so um, usually they like people to have some mindfulness practice. It's the ability to let go of distraction, not take things so to heart, 
to remember everything's changing all of the time. And that's a good thing, you know, in it's a good set of tools to have with you as you embark on loving kindness practice. But there are an awful lot of people who are doing it the really old fashioned way and they're starting with loving kindness practice one reason or another. And I think that's great. Yeah, I guess it it's not it's not really gonna be harmful. Like I don't uh, I don't think I don't think it would be but yeah, um you just to just to jump over to mindfulness meditation for a minute, um you talk beautifully about like the benefits of meditation in in real happiness and you you know you say that you know we're will you'll see these assumptions that are kind of getting in the way of happiness and you know you'll you'll also you'll recapture energy you'll stop limiting yourself you'll be in you know be able to also see these good parts of yourself as well um what what have you discovered in your own life personally? Like, because you had this incredibly tumultuous childhood, and you've you've done so much meditation practice and loving kindness practice since then. What what benefits have you personally experienced? You know, it's it's almost an impossible question for me because I've been yeah. practicing since I was yeah. eighteen years old, <laughs> which is a really a long time ago now. You know, a very long time ago, and so I don't know. I, my life without it is sort of unimaginable to me. Yeah. I don't know. It's been the core of my life for, you know, cl- we're getting on toward 50 years, you know. And so, um, but all along the way, you know, even in the very beginning, because I talk about, you know, in teaching, I often talk about my own earlier experiences. And um, I could see right away, you know, s- some of, it, it's kind of like what I was just saying, you know, some of the same patterns, like my fear or my anger would come up, but I didn't take it so to heart. I didn't kind of get overcome in the same way, like, oh, this is the only thing I'll ever feel for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned to be kinder to myself, which was not that easy. You know, of course you feel these feelings, like we feel what we feel, but what are you adding on to it, you know, and, and can you care about yourself anyway? And You know, it was all like learned skills. It's fascinating. Like sometimes I wonder, because, you know, I've had similar experiences with my meditation practice, which I've been practicing for 14 years now. And and just these feelings of like... um, you know, it, it's been a profound change for me. And then, but sometimes I also wonder like, how the heck does this work? Like, all you do is you sit down. <laughs> I kind of think of it like, like the Buddha thought of figured out this brain hack, right? Like you just sit down and you just sit still with all this stuff that's coming up and you just stay there. And somehow miraculously you like start to feel better with it. And it doesn't, uh, somehow I, I, I don't even understand how it works really. <laughs> Who does? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, the um, the hard thing, or a hard thing for many people, is that we tend to look at, say you're sitting every day, that's your form of, of dedicated practice. We tend to look at that 20-minute period, say, and say, well, am I making progress? You know, is it worth pursuing? And it may be that you're not going to see much of a change or a shift in that 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day in which you formally practice, but you will find you're like a different person. You know, we get different with ourselves and how we speak to ourselves and different with our families and 
um, different in the world, different when we meet a stranger and um, different when we have adversity as well. And so uh, if we look in the right place, we'll see if there's been a benefit or not. Uh, but most people, we tend to look in the wrong place. So we feel kind of frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. So jump going back over to, to loving kindness meditation. And you mentioned a couple times that like we have this tendency to be so hard on ourselves. And I, I, I tend to think that's very cultural, like, you know, just the sort of whole Judeo Christian atmosphere that, you know, we live in and all of that. But, you know, we think that, that being hard on ourselves is like, this is a, like almost a good thing. This is how we're going to change. But you point out that this is this is not actually not actually true. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I, I think um, the core of both uh, styles of practice, mindfulness and loving kindness, has to do with how we're relating to what our experience is. And so um, the presence or absence of a particular emotion or mind state or pattern uh, is not really the crucial question. The crucial question becomes how do you relate to it? Because there are ways that say, you know, a wave of anger can come up. Um, that is like a, a weather system moving through our body. And there are ways that anger can come up and we dive into it and we nurse it and we, you know, get 50 new plans for revenge and it takes over our life and kind of ruins our day or that anger might come up and we can just hate ourselves. We can be so ashamed of it and freaked out about it that we, we get lost in it that way. Um, and, and so it's still anger coming up, but we're relating to it in, in a very different way. And so I've seen people get very discouraged there too. You know, the ways in which, um, you see a kind of thought in your mind um, and you think, I'm not going to go there. You know, I've been there. Let's just let it go. And it's it's gentle and it's loving and it's amused often. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, there you are again. <laughs> there you are again, you know. And so uh, that's what we're really going for. And so the practice of loving kindness is a, a way of like generating, you know, training that self-compassion. And of course, you know, Kristen Neff and other researchers have done that work that shows that it's actually helps us to make changes more easily when we, when we have this, when we have this self-compassion. Um, so can maybe we, we should des describe like exactly how does one practice self-compassion and, and metta slash loving kindness? Um, how do we do that? What are, what are some ways to, to start and what did, what did they traditionally teach and, and what, do you, what do you teach? Mm -hmm. Well, self-compassion is, is a, its own thing, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like a, a, you know, very innovative and... Um, for Western psychology, you know, yeah. uh, the confounding thing about self-compassion is that culturally we're not trained to think of it as a strength, you know, like mm -hmm. I want to learn something. I want to change a habit. I want to make progress in something, but we tend to think being kind of harsh or punitive, you know, like get with it already, you know, mm -hmm. um, is the way. And the research is showing, I understand that, um, it actually, 
we will make the most progress over a sustained period of time through self-compassion, like giving ourselves a break. You know, we blow it, we fall asleep meditating, we... We yell at our kids. We yell at our kids, exactly. (laughs) We don't fulfill our aspiration. And uh, either we spiral down, you know, for like a week and a half (laughs) in judgment, or we say, you know what? That's a very human thing to do. It's painful. I don't want to keep cultivating that. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let go and move on with greater resolve and greater energy. And it makes sense, although we don't think of it that way, usually that um having compassion for oneself and being able to move on with greater energy, we're gonna get a lot more changes done, you know. Whereas that that kind of endless guilt and self-laceration and um, just going over and over and over and over and over the mistake that we made, it leaves us exhausted, it leaves us demoralized, and it doesn't leave us with that kind of resilience to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to start over and I'm, I'm going to try my best not to do it again because I can see how painful it is. And so I think one of the exercises Kristen has is, uh, um, you know, you imagine your your friend, somebody you really care about in a chair next to you and then you uh kind of imagine yourself speaking to them the way you normally speak to yourself and it's like it's impossible we don't do that uh but we do do it with ourselves and so the our biggest hurdle i think is is it's like with loving kindness it's understanding that this is a desirable state this isn't like mm. or this isn't for weaklings so how we would develop self-compassion in the meditative realm um, is many ways, whatever technique you're doing. Let's say you're just settling your attention on the feeling of the breath, the actual sensations of the in and out breath. Now, that was the first technique I ever learned when I went to India. It's a very foundational mindfulness technique. And uh, I, you know, heard that instruction, as you probably heard me say. I thought, that's stupid, you know, like, <laughs> so elementary, like, feel my breath. You know, I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. There's <laughs> the, like, magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to wipe out all my suffering. And then I thought, oh, well, how hard can this be? And it was very hard to my shock. You know, it wasn't like 800 breaths or 900 breaths before my mind started to wander. It was like one breath. Or half a breath, and then I would be gone and way gone, or I'd fall asleep or whatever. And that happens to us. You know, that's the way our minds have been trained to be kind of scattered or distracted or uh, get overwhelmed with things. And then comes this magic moment when we emerge from the fantasy or the memory and we think, oh, the breath. Oh, yeah. That's you know? what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and that is a very important moment because. We've already blown it in the light of, you know, what we set out to do. Um, We've already fallen asleep or been lost, lost in a fantasy. So this is the moment of repair, of potential repair. Are we going to be able to let go and start over, which is the path toward resilience and bouncing back? Or are we going to spend the next hour and a half judging ourselves for having gotten lost in a thought? So like uh, the failure is the golden moment like that. The right. failure is the point. I mean, that, it's called noble failure, right? Like the failure is the moment. It's the most crucial moment. And that's where 
you develop a huge amount of compassion for yourself, even if you never use that term. Because it's so dang hard. <laughs> yeah, it's like the only way to let go and begin again is to sort of get that muscle going. Because it's so tempting just to, you know, if you're in a retreat, you compare yourself to everyone else in the room or you start thinking, you know, I heard that so-and-so sat down and they were just like floating away to see bliss and I don't have any bliss. And, you know, I'm just thinking or whatever it is, you know, it's that's much more how we're conditioned. Well, most people don't practice. I think most people are not practicing meditation for the first time in a retreat in India. Uh, most people are kind of trying this thing at home on their own. So, I mean, do you have any advice for people to get past that point, right? Because what happens, I think, a lot is that people get to this point of like, oh, I've just been sitting here planning my day for 10 minutes. This did nothing. I'm not, they say, I'm not good at this. And they say, well, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to do this thing. So what do you say to those people? How can we help those people? Well, in a way, you know, it's like when you talked about uh, the book I wrote, Real Happiness. In a way, that's why I wrote the book. Um, read the book. Read the book. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, there's something about, you know, uh, do what you can do to help establish a context for yourself. I mean, you don't have to do 10 years of study, you know, uh, unless you want to. Um, but there's some understanding that I think makes it so much easier. Mm -hmm. for us so whether that's doing some reading or listening to some talks or um if you live in a place where there's like a physical place you can go uh just to sit with other people and like hear those conversations it can be helpful because you know i find we tend to bring obviously all our old conditioning with us you know when we go to practice and so that's usually very judgmental and people have lots of ideas about what should be happening. There's so many times these days when I'm introduced as a meditation teacher somewhere and somebody will say to me, Oh, I tried that once I failed at it. And then, I, you know, if I have time, I'd like to know, why do you think you failed at it? And then they say, well, I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't keep all thoughts from coming. I couldn't have only serenity, you know, and, and beautiful emotions. Or, um, but often it's around, destroying thoughts, you know, not having a thought come up in your head. And, you know, first of all, we don't believe you could ever fail at meditation. And second of all, that's not what we're aiming for anyway. That's an impossible state, you know. Um, what I was talking about before is really much more the aim. It's a different relationship to thoughts, to feelings, to our body, to everything. But um, not to sort of destroy, you know, our capacity to think or or something like that. And that's the idea that most people hold. And and so to be able to practice um, without falling sway so much to the old conditioning we have so, makes it easier. Yeah, yeah. So for the listener who's was in that place, it, it sounds like, you know, it, it's – just remembering, you know, in a lot of ways that that failure is the crucial moment. That is the, that is the rep in the, in the gym yeah. <laughs> where you're doing that bicep curl. Like that's the important part. And to get to that point and to realize that you're at that point at all, that's a win. And so we can just recognize that as a win. Yeah. Yeah. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. 
I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. So if we start to, so then the, you know, starting to meditate and kind of seeing these thoughts, maybe starting to see that, you know, we have a lot of unkind thoughts. This is probably, this may be when people start to see the, the value of cultivating, cultivating this sense of loving, loving kindness or, or metta. And traditionally metta starts with sending loving kindness towards ourselves, right? But Mm -hmm. lots of people have problems with that, right? (laughs) Well, the underlying principle of the practice um, I was taught is that it's it's meant to be done in the easiest way possible. It's not a practice of struggle. It's like um, we're putting building blocks in place, you know, all of the time. And so... Um, if we start with something that's relatively easy, we can build up strengths and qualities. So by the time we're doing something more difficult, we've got that on our side. You know, we've gone through stuff, we've built up a capacity and so on. So it actually makes sense, but it's actually quite hard to do to do something in the easiest way possible. So traditionally, um, I should say also the practice of loving kindness is not really, uh, in terms of method, it's not the same as settling your attention on the feeling of the breath. But instead, we use the silent repetition of certain phrases as that kind of anchor. And the phrases are the uh, expression of gift-giving, it's offering. Um, It's like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Sometimes the grammatical construct of may I, may you confuses people. People say to me all the time, well, who are you asking? 
I said, well, I'm not asking anybody anything. It's like you hand someone a birthday card and you say, may you have a great year. That's, that's kind of the, the flow of it. So we settle our attention on these phrases. And uh, in some ways, the skill set is the same. Your mind goes a million other places. You realize that. See if you can let go and come back. And so that's, that's really the unfolding method. So in the uh, practice of it, there's a certain sequence that traditionally was based, said to be based on that principle of doing it the easiest way possible. First, we offer loving kindness to ourselves, then to a benefactor, that someone who's helped us or inspired us. We offer loving kindness to a friend. This isn't all like jammed into one sitting necessarily, but this is the arc of the, the whole sequence. So it's ourselves, a benefactor, a friend, and someone known as a neutral person, someone we don't strongly like or dislike. Um, and this is, you know, often these days it's someone who plays some role in our lives, like a checkout person in the supermarket or a dry cleaner, someone we tend to see now and then. My barista. Okay. <laughs> And then after the neutral person, we offer loving kindness to a difficult person. And this is the same principle. You know, they say, don't start with the most unthinkable person for you. Start with somebody where you have a little bit of annoyance and like more slowly make your way over. Um, But after the difficult person, it's like the open extension of loving kindness to all beings everywhere. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's all based on that one principle. Now, the reality is that we are often not the easiest person. Mm -hmm. And so I always say, going back to that principle, just shift the order, shift Mm -hmm. the sequence. You know, that's, uh, you're not failing. You know, it's, it's, it's doing what's right to be that flexible. Just kind of checking in with what feels right for you. So, yeah, so the principle is, start with, with what's easiest in that for, for me, it was okay to do that for myself, but for, for many, it's like, you know, it's just some, someone else who's, who's easy, easier to love. And that can even be like a pet, right? You know, it's just about kind of finding a little bit of that feeling. Is that, is that what it? Yeah. I mean, um, the texts say, uh, uh, that character, that category, the benefactor, um, who makes you smile when you think of them? Mm-hmm. And often that means for us an embodiment of love. Yeah. So, and that's why it can be a pet. You know, sometimes it's now, sometimes it's a child, sometimes it's a pet. <laughs> for me, it was my, my good friend's <gasps> mom growing up. She was like a second mother to me. And my own mom, I wish her loving kindness all the time, but my, my good friend's mom, of course, probably never, you know, <laughs> never had to discipline me or anything like that. So she was just this holy loving figure. So uh, a shout out to Anita Souza. You're my <laughs> All right. <laughs> you mentioned that that timeline, which is something that I didn't realize for a number of years is that this isn't something you do all in one sitting. <laughs> I used to do it all in one sitting in the very beginning. And, um, and going back to the week-long uh, retreat, we did, you know, one a day, you know, so spending a whole day doing loving kindness for ourselves. But practicing at home, you know, we might say then you practice loving kindness for yourself for a couple of weeks or a week or whatever. What, what would you say to that as far as that timeline? 
Uh, you could do it that way. Um, and another way people sometimes do it, once you've experienced some of the different categories, might be like any one session. Of course, it depends on how long that session is. But I usually say, well, think of it as bookends. You're starting with yourself. You're going to end with all beings everywhere. And you may have time for one other in the middle. You know, So maybe... Um, your dry cleaner is your neutral person. You can go to the dry cleaner later that day. So you're going to use them for that middle part. Um, it may be that your friend's getting an award. So you're going to use them or your friend's having surgery. Um, you're going to use them or something, you know, so uh, it's a balancing act. You don't want to feel rushed. Like, Oh, I've got a second and a half, to, you know, <laughs> it's too much. You know, if we, can slow down and focus our concentration will be much stronger, but it needs to be alive, you know, and meaningful too. And so we have to find that balance every session. And when we're wishing, I think sometimes people feel guilty about not including kind of everyone you love, right? When it's that person you love and, and it's, but it's really about just kind of focusing our attention. Part of it is the practice of the, just the simply the concentration, right? Yeah, it's right. And you won't get everybody. And, and, you know, so sometimes I say, you don't have to because the shift is happening within us. And so, you know, the dynamics with everybody will, you know, potentially be altered with that shift within us. But it's just sometimes I just say, we'll have a party before the end of the sitting, you know, like invite a whole bunch of people in that you feel, you know, maybe should have rightfully been there all along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, so loving kindness, we talked a little bit about the benefits of, of meditation in general, um, but loving kindness meditation, um, you know, in, in your book, uh, loving kindness, you talk about the, um, the, what the Buddha said <laughs> that it brings some particular advantages, some that are, that are kind of interesting. And in that I think number seven is that external dangers, poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. <laughs> What thinking about it more broadly, what do you see as some of the, the benefits of practicing? Yeah, well, maybe I should say a word about poisons and fire <laughs> and try that at home. Um, no, there, there are a lot of legends, you know, that um, uh, the Buddha himself, you know, <coughs> he had a cousin who hated him and let loose uh, um, uh, a raging elephant at him and you know, the Buddha's metta was so strong. It's M-E-T-T-A, two T's. The Buddha's metta was so strong that the elephant came close and, like, bowed down, you know. It may not happen that way, you know, so. That'd be great. Um, I would love to see an elephant. Since you have practiced so much metta in your life, Sharon, I would I would love to see, like, this scene where me, you, so you like, some elephant comes bowing down. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, the uh, primary benefit you could say to the practice of loving kindness is within ourselves uh, I, I have experienced and i've witnessed over and over again you know it's a real shift from a primarily fear-based realm of relationship to one of connection or uh even interest you know like meeting that stranger um giving ourselves a break you know being kinder to ourselves even with a, an adversary coming to a place of 
not kind of nursing the grudge for, you know, the billionth hour, but recognizing, you know, when I act in a really bad way, it's coming from a place of pain. Perhaps they're coming from a place of pain too. Would that they could, could move out of that painful state. They would be happier. Everyone would be happier. We don't benefit. Um, it's just a different way of relating. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, that's where it really counts is, is what happens in our life. And, and, and we do see that very much. Um, and I always come back to the Buddha taught loving kindness is the antidote to fear. Because yeah. this is also a time where a lot of people say, it makes no sense to me. You know, um, it's a very aversive time. There's a lot of positionality. Um, there's a lot of hatred in the air. Yeah. And, and people say, I don't think so. Um, and, and I usually say, well, if you think of something like love or loving kindness as giving in, letting people hurt you, not taking a stand for your own sense of, of what's right, then it makes no sense here, correct? But what if it really is the antidote to fear? Wouldn't that be a kind of useful thing? And so I usually talk about loving kindness as an experiment. I think it's worth the experiment. You can always stop, you know, it's a waste of time. Yeah, I like practicing in, you know, I like practicing. I, I always find that experiment very useful in things like the the airport um, security line and um, and places like that. And I think the teaching of saying, you know, like um, that this person, especially when we practiced with the difficult person on the retreat, um, it was with um, uh, someone who was a friend who I felt hurt by. And to think, you know, just to say, oh, this, recognize this person just wants to be happy just as I want to be happy. Like, okay, I could get there, you know, and it really was, it did really feel very healing. And I, and ultimately, you know, it, I didn't feel like after, you know, I'd been practicing meditation for a lot of years, I didn't feel terribly judgmental, but I realized like some places where I was judgmental after that, like I could see I, when I got back, I was walking in my parents' neighborhood and I know I saw some, you know, like there's a lot of houses with some really ugly Chatskis on the lawn in the neighborhood. And instead of being so judgmental about the ugly Chatskis in the lawn, I thought, oh, these ugly Chatskis are just there because somebody wants to be happy. Like this is the reason why these exist here in the lawn. That's a great lesson. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it's almost like, you know, like you were talking about how it's not – rather than not not only is it not hindering us but it's actually giving us a a much broader perspective that's actually much more honest and closer to the truth than constantly being like you know two fists facing each other to actually be able to see sort of the whole of the person you're having a difficulty with um makes it so much easier to relax and relate for sure yeah. Uh, you put a beautiful poem or a b- bit of a poem in your book, Loving Kindness. And if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to read it. Um, the bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary 
to reteach things its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. And that's why by Galway Kennel. It's such a beautiful choice to reteach a thing its loveliness. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem. And, and uh, I think so evocative of that feeling and spirit of loving kindness practice. Yeah, I think that sometimes like we get these moments in our life where, you know, for most of us, I think we get these sort of fleeting moments where we say, oh my gosh, life is precious. Life is beautiful. I need to appreciate this life, right? But for, for, for I think the most of us, like the, our, our brain, that sort of survival brain takes over and we're just not able to, and it's not our fault, but we're just not able to. And, and this is a practice of helping us to be able to, to, to in, appreciate all these, the blessings of this fleeting life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, said. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Um, I imagine you get some amazing mail to you because I recently, um, I, I've been teaching some versions of loving kindness and I recently got, uh, you know, kind of this one piece of amazing mail where it helped a woman be with her dying mother and, you know, mm-hmm. this practice. And I imagine you get some, some amazing mail um, that, and I imagine some of the is part of what helps you to, to continue teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, uh, well, first of all, it's everyone's own effort, you know, and uh, it's an incredible privilege for me to be a vehicle for people, more people to know about these methods. But um, you know, one of the great frustrations is that it doesn't work because you've read a book about it. It's like you have to actually practice it, you know, and more than once. And, and uh, you know, so it's really one's own effort that makes for that, that kind of transformation. And, the, you know, the greatest transformation is within ourselves. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, there's not an energy that it's like a gift, you know, that is actually potentially going to be received by another but you can't do the practice with a kind of attachment like well if i really pump it out you know you'll you won't be so obnoxious on monday morning um it's not like that you know it's a gift it's a freely given gift that we're offering and we can definitely trace the changes within ourselves and hopefully it has um you know, because we, we shift, dynamics do shift, and uh, real-life relationships shift, and hopefully it also has some some kind of energy in the world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, that as we create more peace in ourselves, we create more peace for everyone. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and I love that you said that it's a gift, because I know that many of my listeners, you know, many listeners are moms and often feel... Uh, hint, you often feel kind of hamstrung or guilty for doing things for themselves. And yet we can maybe make time to, to practice if we know that it's going to make you a better parent uh, for and better able to relate to others. And I think that, you know, if that's what it takes to 
see these practices and be able to get yourself to do them, to do them as a gift for somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's great. But just like you just said, like, don't, don't be attached to the, the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause the outcome can be, it sounds like that, that outcome kind of pops up in, in, in fleeting moments and, and yeah. just, yeah. you never know what's going to happen, I suppose. Yeah. Experiment with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So if you have any um, final words of advice for maybe the listener who's just about to embark on a say, says, yes, I'm inspired. I want to start this meditation practice. I want to start this loving kindness practice. Do you have any words of advice for someone like that? Well, I'm, you know, the kind of person who is very well served by structure. So I usually encourage people just, you know, don't take on an impossible task, like see what's reasonable for you and create a structure and stick to it. So I'll ask people what feels right to you. And they'll say things like, uh, like one person said 10 minutes a day for a month, you know, and then I'll evaluate Then I'll take a look. Maybe that's too much for some people. It's five minutes a day for a week, you know, whatever it is. Um, but set that in place and then uh, really make the experiment. And, and then you can, you can assess, you'll see for yourself if it's worth pursuing. Mm. Sharon Salzberg, thank you for, thank you for not only coming on the podcast. I'm so deeply honored and touched that you came on the mindful mama podcast, but also for the work you've done in the world. I think that the way you transformed your own suffering is incredibly powerful. I mean, I think it shows the power of doing your own work to transform your own suffering and and the effects that that can have for so many others, millions and millions of others beyond the, which you'd never even realize, I'm sure the the scope. And um, I personally have been really transformed by your teaching. And um, so I want to thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I am so excited to hear your thoughts about what Sharon has said in this podcast. I think this is one to listen to again. Um, If you would like to... tell me what you're thinking about this podcast, go ahead and tag me on Instagram. I'm mindful mama mentor. Um, hit me up in the, our basic Facebook group, uh, that you can find when you go to mindfulmamamentor.com. and please do support this podcast by leaving, subscribing and leaving a rating on Apple podcasts makes such a big difference. So we are in a campaign this month to, to get, get those ratings out there it because the I know it you know you have to you're probably listening on your phone you might want to go to your computer and do that so I understand it's it can be hard to remember to do these things but you know my team and I work so hard to get this podcast out to you each week to get amazing world-class guests like Sharon Salzberg and so you can support the work that we do and put out for you for free by leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts. And that makes such a huge difference. So thank you. Thank you so much in advance. If you are going to do that right now, thank you. Um, I don't know where the Southern accent came from all of a sudden. <laughs> anyway, 
I'm wishing you a beautiful week. I am still in having my French adventure, which I will tell you all about when I get home. So uh, uh, if you are, are French, hit me up, send me an email at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com uh, and let me know where I should go. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wishing you a beautiful week. I'm wishing you some loving kindness for yourself, for your family. I hope that you can um, practice to cultivate that energy and I will be practicing with you for sure. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.